Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of James. James chapter 3. I'm so glad you all are here with us today. And one of the things that, that I am so thankful for is that the Word of God has the answers to all of man's problems. Amen? Just a little testimony. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. And um, I have been aware of the gospel since I've been aware of really any conscious thoughts. Earliest, my earliest memories are Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How many of you, that's kind of your, your background. So I've been around the Christian faith and biblical faith literally all my life. But I went to Bible college, and when I was in Bible college, it was really the first time I was introduced to people who, and, and I'm sure that they were Christians, they just didn't act like it. And there, when it's just your peers that are that way, sometimes you can brush it off. But when it is the people that, are, that you are supposed to be submitting to, who are your leaders and teachers, then that starts to shake your faith. And that happened to me. There was behavior by the administration at the Bible college that was, it was really, the only thing you can call it is ungodly and dishonest. So I left. Moved to Chicago, the Chicago area, and was working in downtown Chicago on Michigan Avenue at a clothing store and just enjoying all the trappings and surroundings of wealth and just enjoying being there. And I started helping with the young people at a church. And a friend of mine from Bible college gave me a set of books called The Complete Works of Francis Schaeffer. Now, who, is there anyone here who's read anything by Francis Schaeffer? A few of you have. Um, Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian. He was identified by Time Magazine as the missionary to the intellectual. And I was 20, probably 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And uh, I fancied myself an intellectual. That surprises you, doesn't it? You know, y'all look shocked. And so, you know, I really thought that, uh, you know, I had it together. You know, I would read. And But what's funny is this guy gave me this set of books, and it starts with, the, he, it's called Francis Schaeffer's Trilogy. The God who is there, he is there and he is not silent and escape from reason. I can't remember the order of the books, but those are the three. And I started reading through those books. The first thing that I discovered was I was not an intellectual. <laughs> I had to have a dictionary. I'd have to reread the, the uh, paragraphs over and over again. He would refer to people that I'd never heard of. And it was very difficult reading. The second thing that I discovered is what my father had told me about truth my father was a pastor, remember. My father hadn't behaved the way the people in the college had behaved. What my father had taught me about truth and about the Word of God was true. It was, and it still is, true. Truth does exist. We can know the truth. And as we saw last week, Jesus Christ said in John 8, that you, may, you can know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Amen? It is possible to know the truth. Schaefer helped me to see that. The other thing that Schaefer did was he introduced me to the philosophers, to the great thinkers of history. And, of course, Schaefer and I just, this is going to be recorded and people will be listening to this. Um, we need to know this is Grace Baptist Church. We hold to Baptist doctrines of the church. Amen? We believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. We believe that baptism is only for believers. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are to be baptized by immersion after they believe. That's clearly taught in Scripture. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. That is, that there's no, there's no authority over the, church, the local church other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That's it. We believe in a born-again, a regenerate, a saved church membership. We don't baptize babies and have them become members because they're not saved. They're not born again. If you're a member of Grace Baptist Church, you must have made a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you must have been baptized by immersion, either in this church or a church, with the same doctrine that we preach. That's what we believe, and it's very clear in the Scriptures. We believe in two offices. There's the pastor and the deacon. Two ordinances, not sacraments, two ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe in individual soul liberty, that no one can force anyone to believe anything else. And that's why we present the Bible. We preach the Word of God clearly in its context, and we present the Scriptures in a way that you can understand it so that you can make the decision for yourself. Amen? 
And then God's Holy Spirit will speak to you and draw you to himself. I can't persuade you of anything. I can't change you. I can't make you do anything. That's individual soul liberty. Our individual soul liberty is based on our belief in the priesthood of the believer. I don't have to go and confess my sin to another man because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And now he has become our high priest. Isn't that what the Bible says? The word of God says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we can come boldly to the throne of grace. I don't have to go through any man. You don't have to confess your sin to me. I don't confess my sin to you. We confess our faults one to another so that we can live with each other and minister with each other in peace. But we don't have to confess our sin to each other. There's only one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen? So Francis Schaeffer and I would disagree on a few things. But his teaching on these philosophers helped me immensely. And that was the basis for my education on these things, and that's 28 years ago or something. And I've tried to study some of these things since then. And what we learn as we study these men is that they are philosophers. The first thing that we need to understand about philosophy is philosophy is the love of wisdom. The love of wisdom. So let's look at this. Let's look at James chapter 3 and verse 13. Who is a wise man? Well, if we're going to study philosophy, maybe that would be a good thing for us to understand. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us to understand your word and understand that there is a serious battle between the modern mind and the mind of Christ. Lord, help us to see that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our series is History That Matters. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, rose from the dead. For the next 300 years, you had the early church. After about 325, you had a marriage of church, state, and pagan religion that grew into a system that is known today as Roman Catholicism. So they would identify their uh, authority as the word of God and tradition. So that's their authority. Over here you have a group of people that their authority has only been the word of God. And we would find ourselves in this line. Right about here you had the Protestant Reformation. And so during the Protestant Reformation, there were many people all over the world who came back to, to they came out of the Roman Catholic system and united with those who said the Bible is our sole authority. But now that many of those mainline denominations have gone back and are accepting this concept of no truth, one world church, let's just all get along. All right? Rodney King theology. Then over here, Jesus Christ is going to return and all of those who believe are going to be taken out. Amen? That's, that's pretty clear in history. And if you want a fuller explanation of that, we did that in a few minutes last week. So you can get that, that disc. Now, here's where we are today. If, you, if we start in about 1500, now we've got to understand that the, the, this, this concept of philosophy, a lover of wisdom, began a long time before 1500. The first philosopher was a guy named Thales. Thales is famous because he threw... Now, let me stop here. The early philosophers, almost all of them were mathematicians. Mathematicians are almost always evil. <laughs> historians are good mathematicians are evil that's kind of my position on it how many math people do we have here math people here okay there'll be an altar call at the end you can okay. no it's interesting that these that, that their thinking was in such a way that it led them to search out other things so you have the first was thales and thales mathematician and in 585 bc he predicted 
a solar eclipse. That's pretty impressive in 5 BC, or 585 BC. He is considered the father of Western philosophy, the father of Western philosophy. And what he did was he, he said everything comes down. He's trying to find what these early philosophers were trying to do is find a single purpose or a single thing that we could gather all of our knowledge around. And do you know what he came up with was the singularity for him? Air. I'm, I'm sorry, water. His was water. Why? Because everything that he saw was either solid, liquid, or gas. And so that means that water would best describe that. So his singularity was water. Isn't that interesting? The next one, the, and he had, he had a student, Anaximander, and Anaximander thought that, well, he believed in uh, eternity. He is the man who first introduced this concept of boundlessness. We would call that infinity. He also introduced agelessness. We would call that eternity. So it's interesting that you have water and you have infinity. It almost sounds like Genesis chapter 1. And these guys could have been, they really could have been helped a lot by Genesis and Job, which were available when they were coming up with their ideas and their concepts. So you have these thoughts. Um, you had Anaximander and then uh, Anaximenes. And these guys came up with all these. Anaximenes didn't like it. He said, water's not good enough. We need to go to air. So the, the, the ultimate thing is air. And then here's the next group. They said the ultimate in reality can't just be one thing. It's air, earth, fire, and water. How many of you ever heard of that? You know, super kids unite or whatever that was. We get deep stuff here at Grace Baptist Church. All right. So then the philosopher said, well, there really does need to be one overarching, the arche, the, the a first cause, a one thing. And so they, there were four elements. They were looking for a fifth element. And that's where the word quintessence, the quintessence of something, that's the ultimate, the overriding truth. And they were looking for that overriding truth. And we know what that overriding truth is. It's in the beginning God. And so we, even from the beginning, the earliest philosophers, the answers to all of their questions were found in the word of God. It's a fascinating study. I wish I could expand it more. Let's jump ahead about 2000 years up here to 1500 AD. If in, in 1500 AD, you have the, the enlightenment has taken place starting around the 1200s. And men are trying, or they're starting to think and introduce ideas. This man right here, Rene Descartes, he is called the father of Western, the, uh, uh, the, the father of modern philosophy. The father of modern, modern philosophy. He came up with this brilliant thought, and you will have heard this. I think, therefore, you know, Popeye, I am what I am, Popeye the sailor man. I think, therefore, I am. Isn't that brilliant? First of all, it's wrong. It doesn't even, it doesn't even follow logically. His whole idea is he, what he was going to try to do, he was going to try to find the ultimate reality. He was responding to the skeptics. Now, when we think of skeptics, there are people that don't believe the Bible. In his day, skepticism was they don't believe in anything. You know, prove to me that I'm here. You know, then you, you know, wring their nose and they cry. Okay, you're here. But so he was responding to those people. And so what he said was, in order for me to find what truth really is, I have to doubt everything. Now, remember, what we're talking about is the history that matters. We're looking at the modern mind versus the mind of Christ. Now you begin to see all the way back in. He wrote a book called Discourse on Method in 1637. Beginning in 1637, we have this idea of doubt everything. Doubt everything. Do you know what that means? The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But if you begin by doubting God, can you ever find wisdom? No. So all the way back, you have this idea of doubt everything. And he started... That, that began that influence. So he said, if I doubt everything, then those things that are true are only those things in which I can find no doubt. And so the first thing that he decided was, well, I think, and I have the ability to think, the capacity to think, and I cannot, even if I imagine myself as not existing, I'm still existing. 
So I must, I think, therefore I exist. What a genius. I think, therefore I am. Now the simple fact is, that doesn't follow. We would call that a non sequitur, right? It's, it's not in sequence, it doesn't follow. What he should have said is, I think, therefore thinking exists. Not therefore I am. And what, he, what, what that grew into was this idea that my, that my thought, my, my intellectual capacity exists even apart from my body. And so the body becomes mechanistic. And so you can, that grows into the idea, the philosophy, that truth or thought is the only thing that matters and you can do whatever you want with people. Since God is only an imagination of my thought, his next, the way that he came up with the idea of God I can, I can conceive of someone greater than myself, more perfect than myself. Therefore, that thought must have come from God. So God exists. So here's what he was saying. I think, therefore I am, is. And I'm sure God was saying, thank you very much. <laughs> it's so amazing when you see how arrogant this thinking is. And so what this does is it leads to an idea called subjectivism or egoism. Egoism is the idea that everything is about me. Quit being so self-centered. This is about me. Everything is about me. And I determine reality for myself. I determine what's right and wrong. I determine what's true. So here's the idea. God is whatever I imagine him to be. So he doesn't really have any sway on my life. How many of you see how that's influenced the world? And it's absolutely wrong. I exist because God said, let there be light. I exist because God created man out of the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life and he became a living soul. You see, when you take away the creatorship, you end up with all these strange ideas. So let's not spend too much more time on him and the people said. Reality is defined by what we think it to be. Since God is a mere subjective thought and not real, then he does not stand against whatever we desire to do with the machine of nature, especially the machinery of the human body. Okay, so we can thank good old Rene for that. Rene Descartes, he wrote a book called Meditations. He wrote Discourse on Method. That is how he influenced the world. This Thomas Hobbes would have influenced us next. Thomas Hobbes wrote a book in 1651 called Leviathan. How many of you have heard of that? The book Leviathan. Hobbes was a wicked, wicked, wicked man. Hobbes came up with this concept that there is no God, and since there is no God, there is therefore no good or evil. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? And if there's no good or evil, then human beings are merely physical creatures who have no other meaning or goal in life but to feel physical pleasure and avoid physical pain. So he imagined man in the beginning as being a brute who only cared about physical pleasure and avoiding pain. And so the only right, the only thing that is good, is what brings me pleasure. What's bad or evil brings me pain. That's his definition of good and evil. That is the exact definition that we use in our culture today. If it's not hurting anybody, it's good. See what happens when you remove God from the idea? So he had this idea that man in his very essence is basically a self-centered person and his whole existence was to have mayhem, okay? Um, the notions of good or, or evil arise because human beings call what brings them physical pleasure good and what gives them physical pain evil. Since there is no God, no good or evil by nature, there is no limit to what anyone can do to get what he desires. There's no limit to what he can do to avoid physical pain. So here's what this grew into. And I know this is not the most exciting thing. We'll get to some more exciting stuff here in a second. But you've got to understand where these ideas come from. His idea, what he believed, was that human rights are the same things as human desires. So if I have a desire in my flesh, that is my right. Does that sound like where we are today? And so right and wrong 
have to do with what you want or don't want or what you like or dislike, and yours can be different than mine, and yours are just as valid as mine. That's where this idea comes from. Look at what it leads to. This leads to the idea of the the result is that morality becomes merely a private thing. Did you hear what I said? Uh, And how many of you ever heard somebody say this? Well, those things, those are personal. I keep those to myself. How many times have you ever heard a politician say, well, I'm personally against abortion, but I believe in a woman's right to choose. How many of you have heard somebody say that? Right to choose what? Finish the sentence. Right to choose to kill the baby. Isn't that interesting? So I'm against it, but if you want to do that, that's okay. So if Patrick wants to kill Aiden, personally I'm against that. But it's your choice. Now, many of you understand the logical and ethical fallacy of that position? This comes back to Hobbes. This guy was a wicked man. That guy split hell wide open, I guarantee you. It's just amazing what he believed. And here's what it leads to. Morality becomes merely a private thing and a thing of personal taste so that I think abortion is wrong or the statement, I think pornography is wrong are no more or less moral statements than I don't like chocolate ice cream or I don't like the color green. Do you understand that's the world we live in? Well, you, I understand. And and you know what, Nick? I hear you. And I know that's how you feel. And because that's how you feel, that's okay. You have your truth, and I have my truth. Really. You see, that all comes back to Hobbes. Because there's no God, there's no right or wrong. Man is an animal, and his desires will lead him to do whatever he wants to do. That's where we've come to the place where homosexuality is considered an acceptable lifestyle in our culture. And what's interesting, and this was the premise, this was the thought, this statement I'm going to make right here is the premise for my whole message today. How did we get to the place where Christians think it's inappropriate to say, we're right, they're wrong? Don't miss this. I think almost everyone in this room would be uncomfortable to stand up in a public setting and say homosexuality is an abomination. See, there are people in this room that are uncomfortable with me saying that right now because you're thinking there might be someone here who is either a homosexual or has a loved one who's a homosexual. There are people right now that are uncomfortable with me dealing with this subject as if, as if it's simply a matter of opinion or a matter of taste. And it is not in good taste to deal with that in a public setting. How did we get to the place where born again, Bible believing Christians are uncomfortable with identifying homosexuality as an abhorrent lifestyle. Dr. E was telling us Wednesday night that when he took his uh, psychiatric uh, section in medical school, that homosexuality was still defined as a mental illness. Do you see where we've come? Uh, The governor, the, the man who's running for governor in New York, He said that he does not want homosexuality to be presented as, um, what's the the phrase that he used? Um, An alternative lifestyle or a positive lifestyle. And he's absolutely right. Anyone here, that's that's what you dream of for your children? Why? The average, now these numbers are uh, at least 10 years old, so I've not updated my research on it. But as of about 10 years ago, the average life expectancy for a homosexual man, apart from AIDS, was 40 years. Anyone here going to stand up and tell me that's a healthy lifestyle? Well, there are other things that contribute to it. Yeah, they're part of the lifestyle. They're part of the lifestyle. It's, and isn't it interesting that when God tells us something is good, it's good for us? 
When God tells us something is bad, it's bad for us. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. And yet we've come to the place where Christians are afraid to say that. Now, let's take it to the next step. We have, a, we have many school teachers in this room, and I'm thankful for all of our godly school teachers. You all know what I believe about the public school system. I think the public school system is what it was designed to be by the authors of it. They called it a seminary of secularism. John Dewey, Francis Potter, the founders of our modern educational system, they called it a secular seminary. They removed God from the schools, they removed God from the curriculum, and they said, if we can have the children for five days a week, one hour of Sunday school won't overcome what we're doing. That's what they said. So you school teachers, you public school teachers that we have here in the room, you are standing against the darkness every day. You are, you are representing the Lord Jesus Christ in that building every day, and you're doing it with boldness, you're doing it with integrity, you're doing it with character. But I was speaking with Brent New this week. We'd gone over, I was over, we were waiting for Carrie to have her, uh, to, for Carrie's knee surgery. And we were talking about this. Brent in here this morning? Okay. Um, we were talking about it. And I said, imagine this. Now, if you all know Brent, Brent is not afraid to stand up and tell the truth. Amen? It, it, there's no concern. Of course, when you're eight feet tall, you don't have to worry about that stuff. <laughs> I told Dodie they have mutants. Their family are mutants. <laughs> And Brent and I were talking, and I said, for you to stand up and identify the truth. Let's, let's say about homosexuality. That's our, that's our illustration. I said, imagine the pressure. I said, think of the pressure that you feel in that classroom when you speak the truth. And you're a man who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. You've been taught the Word of God. You go to a church where that's defended and supported. You grew up in a home where that's defended and supported. Now imagine the people who go to more moderate churches, which is pretty much all of them, <laughs> right? We're the, we're the nuts. And they go to a more moderate church with more moderate views. Imagine how those school teachers feel trying to stand for the truth in that environment. Where did that timidity or outright, the, the, the sense of outright hostility to the concept, the very concept of right and wrong, where did that come from? Right here, Thomas Hobbes. That has influenced all of our thinking. Well, imagine this. Here's what they say. God made me that way. How many of you have ever heard someone say that? God made me that way. Now, let me stop right here. If you have a friend or a loved one who is in that lifestyle, I'm not saying we're supposed to go stone him or her. Amen? No. We would love them as much as we would love anyone else. And we would love them enough to tell them, man, you've got to get out of this. This is going to kill you. This is going to ruin your life. This is awful. It's going to mess you up forever. Amen? So here's the idea. If we can identify right and wrong, but here's what they say. I was born that way. I was born that way. Well, you know what? I was born to want to take what's yours and make it mine. Is that okay? Should we pass laws to protect me? You're discriminating against me. Uh, I was born covetous. So let's, let's enforce with laws... My covetousness. Oh, wait a minute. I think we've done that. I think it's called health care. Are you seeing how these ideas influence and impact? Here's the, let's go on. So many areas we could go. All right. So you have Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Thomas Hobbes comes up with this idea of right and wrong is whatever I desire. And then his social contract would lead that into enforcing those things by law. All right. So now the next person that I want to talk about is Rousseau. And we'll just talk about him briefly. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Most of us know of him because of his social contract. But his social contract was based on another book that he wrote called Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality Among Men. All right, so now, here's the idea, very briefly. Rousseau had this idea, and again, he imagines a beginning where all men live in the world, 
no houses, no property ownership, no gardening, and there were enough apples and nuts for all. And if he wanted to have a relationship with a woman, he would just find one and then leave. And she would care for that child just long enough to where the child could care for itself, and there was no emotional attachment. And that's the original nature of man. And then someone made the mistake of actually building a hut and putting a fence around his property and calling it mine. Because if it's mine, now there can be such a thing as theft. He invited a woman to come in and live with him, and now she becomes his, and now there becomes such a thing as adultery. So where do you think that philosophy ended up? Anyone heard of Karl Marx? That all starts with Rousseau, and Rousseau would be considered a romantic philosopher. He had these grand ideas, and he was such a nice guy that he had many mistresses. He had one woman that lived with him, uh, her name was Teresa, for about 25 years, but she just, he just treated her like a housekeeper. And she had five of his children. And whenever she would have a child, he would never even see the child. He would take her to a midwife. She would deliver the child and take the child to the orphanage where the child was almost sure to die. And he wrote about it in his books as, it's no big deal. Because I want to be back to the natural state of things where I am free from the responsibilities of parenthood. Nice guy, huh? Now, where do you think that concept ends up? How about abortion? How about, how about divorce? Easy divorce. How about this whole idea of free love? The free love concept comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. These are great people. Now, let's look at how the Bible describes them. 2 Timothy 3. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. Verse 1. And let's see if this passage describes what we've just learned about simply three of the philosophers. All right? Chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. I think, therefore I am. Hobbes, whatever I want. That's what it is. Rousseau, the natural man. Lovers of their own selves. Covetous. Boasters. Proud. God exists because I think he is. Or God doesn't exist at all. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Without natural affection. Truce, break, truce breakers. False accusers. Incontinent, that means out of control. Fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. You might want to write there, the view. Now, it's funny, but is it true? Is it true? Modern thought versus the mind of Christ. You'd be amazed how many, how many Christian women watch that and get their views from those wicked wicked people. I don't know if you understand how vile they are. All right? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to turn away from them. This describes them. Verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that describe these guys right here? I mean, I'm not smart enough to make that up. This was written 2,000 years ago. 
saying that this is what is coming. This is what we're going to live with. So now, there is a scriptural basis for knowledge. Remember, you have the lovers of wisdom, seekers of knowledge. There's a scriptural basis for knowledge. Go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. I have been immersed in this stuff for the last several weeks. This was what I did when I was in college ministry. This was, you know, my life studying these kinds of things. But what I have found is in, in evangelicalism, broader evangelicalism, they, they'll speak about these things, but they'll never bring it home to where we actually live, like the illustration of homosexuality or the illustration of abortion or the illustrations of where we live today. And it doesn't help us if we don't know how it works. Amen? All right, so now, here is the basis for knowledge. Look at John chapter 7, verse 17. If any man... Well, look at verse 16. Okay, verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man... Letters having never learned. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. Again, I was in college ministry for years, and I've dealt with highly educated people. Now, how many of you know that I'm for education? Okay, I'm, I'm for education. But just because somebody has a lot of letters beside their names, their name does not mean they're wise. And there's always a certain condescension. Um, and, and it's funny. It would be like me, and I've studied theology. I've studied the things of God, the history of the church. That's what I give my life to. But imagine if I had the idea that because I have that learning, that Dan New here doesn't know anything. Okay? So I'm, I'm talking to him, you know, John, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Okay, now let me explain who God is. As if he's never heard of God. He knew God before I did. He's way older than me. Um, so do you follow what I'm saying? There is a real professional condescension in almost every field. Uh, the physicist doesn't think anyone else can understand the nature of reality. You follow what I'm saying? Okay. Now, not all of them, but I think that's a fair general statement for our society. That's what these learned men were saying about Jesus. Can you imagine wondering where Jesus learned the Bible? Pretty funny question. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. You see, the way to know what the truth really is, is begin obeying the truth. As I obey the doctrine that is given in Scripture, then I can understand the world around me. Then I can understand how all of these different things apply. There is a scriptural basis for knowledge. Here are some things that we can know. We can know these for sure. Every philosopher needs to hear this. That mankind is dead in trespasses and sin and headed for hell. That man can be saved by grace through faith. That salvation is from a literal burning lake of fire. And salvation is to an eternal holy city. That God appeared on this earth as a man. That the Bible is the absolute truth, divinely inspired and preserved. That salvation is a free gift, which you cannot ever earn. Amen? But listen to where we are. Young people who end up in college, this is what they think. Stephen, uh, Steve Turner wrote this. He calls it the creed. Of the modern mind. We believe in Marx, Freudian, Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in relations before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that homosexuality is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. 
We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if, death, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What's average is normal and what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, excepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. If chance be the father of all flesh, if chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky, and when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, Bomb blast school. It is but the sound of man worshiping his maker himself. That's where we are. Great paleontologist Stephen Gould, anyone who's gone to study physics or, or paleontology will have read Stephen Gould. Here's his famous statement. And this is not a joke. He's serious. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform its legs for terrestrial into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arriving in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. That's where all this genius ends. It ends with no purpose no truth, no hope, and no meaning. But here's the problem. Philosophy, there has never been a philosopher. None of the great philosophers were defenders of the Scriptures. So when you have Christian philosophers now, almost none of them will defend the Scriptures. Let me give you an example of this. All right, let me just do this real quick. The basics of philosophy, what they're trying to discover is metaphysics. Metaphysics is anything that's outside of our ability to observe. So they would separate philosophy from science, all right? So God would be outside of science is what they're saying. Epistemology is the science of knowing. So it's, they're trying to decide, what can I really know? Well, the Bible says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. The Bible says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. Through the pulling down, or to the pulling, through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every philosopher needs to know that truth. Amen? This is where we are. Now, I want, you, I want to demonstrate the problem. How many of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias? He is a Christian philosopher. I've read many of his books. I listen to his programs, and he's been very helpful to me in argumentation. But one thing that I noticed about Ravi is he almost never quotes scripture. Almost never speaks on college campuses. Almost never quotes scripture. What I'm going to show you is he is doing a question and answer session at the University of Illinois. Someone has asked him, why is the Bible true? Good question. Public college, public university. He's giving his answer. I'm taking it from the middle. Here's what Ravi Zacharias says. Listen very carefully. And uh, uh, Frank, make sure that they can hear it real well. But when you look at the scriptures, and by the way, the Bible is a very distinctive piece of literature to any other religious piece of scripture. Any Muslim will tell you that his book, the Quran, is word for word perfect. 
It is a perfect revelation of Allah in the eye of the Muslim. They will affirm that again and again. That's why no translation in, of the Quran will ever do justice in their estimation of the Quran. It is the perfect expression of, uh, of Allah himself as dictated to Muhammad who recited it. Now, the Bible as we, know, as we know it does not affirm that verbal perfection. Did you hear that? This is the great defender of the faith. With friends like these. All right. A great deal of difficulty with verbal perfection. Are we really saying that no one word would have been better than the other word in, in, these, in the volume of material? But when you take the scriptures disclosed over centuries and over, over 1,500 years, as I said, 40 different writers, 66 books, and you see the prophetic schema all the way down to the person of Christ. Let me give you an example of this. All right. And he goes on to give some pretty good examples from prophecy. But what he's saying is, we cannot believe, he said, I have a very difficult time with the idea of verbal perfection. Well, God said every word of God is pure. What does that mean? It must mean something. Words have meanings. And what's interesting is that is one of the core things that, that Ravi Zacharias will defend. But in modern Christianity, modern evangelicalism, the belief in a literal, verbally preserved word of God, that is not considered intellectual. So, go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Let's bring this home. What does the Bible tell us? How are we supposed to stand? Remember, our deep concern is, if all of these people are right, then there is no truth, no purpose, no hope, no meaning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. So who is being addressed? The people at Colossae, but Laodicean Christians. All right? Now, look at what it says. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. They're only reading the scriptures. That's us. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, now, do you think maybe that could be a helpful passage for the philosopher? If they're looking for wisdom and if they love knowledge, then they should love the God of the Bible because it is all found in Him. But the problem is they hate Him. And they want to find the truth somewhere else, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, a lover of wisdom, a philosopher, is by nature an idolater because that knowledge or wisdom is what he's seeking apart from God. And the only true knowledge is the knowledge that's found in God. Now look at what the Bible says. Verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you, with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Okay, so that's what we're doing here. We're, we're learning the truth. We have received Christ. I hope you've received Christ as your Savior. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, received the free gift of eternal life that He wants to give you, then you have no hope for eternal life. If you have received Him, then what we're trying to do here is get you established so you're not moved by enticing words. Amen? We're trying to make sure that you're built up in the faith you know doctrine. You know what the Bible says. 
Now let me stop here for a second before we go to the next verses. And I want you to get this. The reason that I was not able to spend time dealing with the philosophers. Now don't miss this. Is because we as a culture have left the deep thinking to the intellectual elite. And the average man must be dealt with on the level of stories and feelings. Stories and feelings. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, that's kind of insulting. Man, when I first saw that, I was kind of insulted, too. I was mad that people had programmed me to always be looking for something that will keep my attention because I was not capable of following it without being entertained. And it's interesting. I'm looking at some young people right now. that are, they're, they're just gone. I want you to look at your kids next to you, and if they're sleeping or not paying attention, help them. This is vitally important that we get this. We have got to move from what makes me feel good or a a, a story that captures my attention to be able to deal with facts and premises and theories and compare them to the Word of God, the doctrinal, solid truth. That's why we're building you up in the faith. We want you to take this out into the world and change the culture with the Word of God. We want it to go into the workplace, into the schoolhouse, into the factory. We want it to go into the doctor's office and into the architect's office. And we want it all through the culture because reality is that which is real. And all reality must conform itself to the reality of the Word of God. Now look at what the Bible says. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Look at verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Now, what I think is interesting about that, if if you're here today and you have a different translation of the Bible, yours will say something different. It will say through his philosophy or through a vain philosophy, or through a false philosophy. Are you ready for this? This is going to blow your mind. There is not one Greek manuscript, not one Latin manuscript, not one preserved text anywhere in the world that has anything but beware. Look, look what the text says. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy no qualifying words it is just do not be spoiled through philosophy and the problem is we have a christianity today that is called a rational christianity where we can have an intellectual defense for the faith well i believe that we have a faith that can be defended intellectually but it does not begin with my intellect it begins with the truth of the Word of God. And whatever philosophy I have must find its place beneath the authority of the Scriptures. Now, don't miss this. Keep your place here. Go to the book of Philippians. It's a book just right before this one. The same person that said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Look at what he said. Verse 17. He's talking about some people preach Christ. Verse 16, the one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the, uh, but the other of love, and look at what it says, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. That was his position, set for the defense of the gospel. That's the same one, the same man inspired by God to say, beware of philosophy. And all of us has been affected by it. See, what we want to do is we want to live with one foot firmly planted in the Scriptures, in the Word of God, and in the ministry of the church. But we want to have the other foot firmly planted in the world. Pastor, I can't believe 
that you preach this long in this culture. We haven't even had a commercial break yet. See, we are right in the world and in the church. Pastor, why do I need to know this stuff? Because of this foot. See, we have been so impacted by the world, and we don't even know it. And the Bible tells us to beware. What are some other things the Bible tells us to beware? Same word. Beware of dogs. <laughs> Who are dogs? People that would defile the Scriptures. Beware of leaven. What's leaven in the Bible? False doctrine. Beware of false prophets. Beware of scribes. Who are scribes? People that were going to twist the Scriptures. Beware of covetousness. Beware of unbelief. Folks, philosophy is not in good company in the Bible. We need to be aware of it. No defenders of the Scriptures among the philosophers. And the other thing that we need to understand about this philosophy is the basis for all modern philosophy is fiction. They imagine a civilization that never existed and are trying to get us back to that. Or they imagine what they do is they replace Genesis with evolution and they replace heaven with utopia. And none of those exist. The only reality is a reality as revealed in the Word of God. Jesus Christ. Well, let me say this. It is dangerous to have an ambivalent attitude toward the philosophers. I, um, I, I read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Consequences of Ideas. Have any, has anyone here read that book, Consequences of Ideas? Pretty good book. But he also has a teaching series, about 30 sessions on the history of philosophy. It's kind of a survey of philosophy. I watched most of that um, in preparation for this. And the thing that I noticed, number one, he only quoted one passage of Scripture through the whole series. Do you think maybe God would have something to say about the philosophers? Seriously. How many of you think God might have something to say? As a Christian teacher, as a Christian teacher, a biblically-based teacher, it would be intellectually and, may I say, physically impossible for me to spend that much time without going to the Bible. It shows you where his love is. Secondly, he had great admiration for these men, every one of them. And he wanted to make sure that we knew not to dismiss their ideas cavalierly because these men were great thinkers. Well, they tell me Bob Dylan was too. This gins are digging in. Great artist, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Right? Genius. Remember, just like modern art. Modern art is the product of the untalented, sold by the unscrupulous to the unknowing. That's the world we live in. And that deconstruction of beauty is what brought us the music that we have today, the deconstruction of beauty. The deconstruction of beauty is what brought us modern art. Where you walk in, you look at this stuff that's all splashed together, a Picasso with body parts all dismembered, and you're looking at it and you're going, that moves me. I'm serious. You go. I, I've been to some of the great art galleries in the world, and it's so funny just to watch people. And you'll watch, you know, a frail man come in, and he walks in. That's fabulous. <laughs> Look at the colors. The, the 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 contrast is just amazing. And then you have some guy come in in a Carhartt. You know why? That guy hasn't been taught to overrule his good sense. That's what philosophy has done to us. That is exactly where we are. And I love beauty and art and music. I love all of that. But there's no way in the world that you're ever going to convince me that Yoko Ono has beautiful music. Amen? It's horrible! John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. There's no heaven above us, no earth below us. Why in the world would I want to imagine that? That means this suffering and misery, this mess is all there is? No. Hey, uh, I think he knows different now. Yeah. What's he imagining right now? You see, philosophy has this, this love of philosophy and this love of words and ideas. It has consequences when it's not submitted to the word. Jesus Christ is the answer to all the questions of philosophy. What about the question of origin? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here's the answer for origin. How about energy? That's the other thing that they focus on. How do these things keep going? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What about this idea of a singularity? Well, you're, they're all still looking for that. Anyone heard of string theory? But that's what that's about. It's looking for the great singularity. Well, we know the singularity. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. That's Jesus Christ. He is the singularity that the world is looking for. What about the problem of evil? Well, the Bible clears that up. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, in his body, took care of that sin. As, as one man sin entered into the world, so by one man all of that sin is forgiven. Jesus Christ, if you'll come to him. What about the future? What about the question of the future? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. What about eternity? Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What about the word of God, eternal truth, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Bible has the answer for all the problems. But what about the modern mind versus the mind of Christ. Go with me back to Philippians. Let's finish up with this. The modern mind versus the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is identified for us. Look at verse 25 of chapter 1, or verse 23. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So what is this mind of Christ? It's humility of spirit. It is, it is setting aside my desires, what I want for him and then for you. That's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, it's not what Hobbes said, that everything is about my desires. It's not what Descartes said, that whatever is in my mind is important. It's not what Rousseau said, where we need to remove all the structures of society so that I can fulfill my pleasure. If it feels good, do it. No. The mind of Christ is completely different than that. The mind of Christ is submission, humility of spirit to the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the needs of others. That's the mind of Christ. But it's humility of spirit, but it's also something else. Look at verse 27, chapter 1. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you, what? Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 29. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what is the mind of Christ? The modern mind is whatever the mind of man can conceive, the mind of man can achieve. I know that's not true. I've tried to dunk a basketball. I can conceive of it. I just can't achieve it. That's a false premise. Amen? False premise. Completely ridiculous based on the philosophies that we've been looking at. The, the, the mind of the world, the modern mind says, I am the center of the universe. However things affect me, that is reality. No. No. The mind of Christ is humility of thought and purpose. A you, you, humility of spirit and unity of thought and purpose. Oneness of mind with God through the word of God. Where we, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we all speak the same thing. There are no divisions among us, but we're perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. If you want to have joy, if you want to have happiness, if you want to have meaning in life, well, that's found in the book of Philippians. 36 times in the book of Philippians, in four chapters, 36 times, your mind, your thought process is referenced and the reference is joy in Christ. We have joy through the mind of Christ. That's how we can get it. That is the difference. You know, it's interesting. There was a philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre is the epitome of all the philosophers. He died in 1980. You know what Sartre said? Famous quote from Sartre. The only philosophical question that I cannot answer is whether or not to commit suicide. Rousseau, abandoning his five children. Nietzsche, the German philosopher who had proclaimed that God is dead, spent the last 14 years of his life in insanity. His father had been a pastor. His grandfather had been a pastor. His mother had read scripture to him and he had memorized scripture as a boy. And then his insanity, he'd have great periods of silence. And then he would shout and scream out scripture that he had memorized as a child. He died completely insane. So you have the modern mind or the mind of Christ. Joy. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Folks, I want you to be happy. I want you to have joy. You cannot have happiness and joy until you have peace with God. You cannot have peace with God until you submit to His Word because He's the Creator He's the Redeemer. He's the author and finisher of our faith. You see, Jesus Christ is philosophy's noblest idea. That is the modern mind versus the mind of Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, please help us to submit to it.